0: Um, now, if you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles for you to borrow. They're in these black uh, chair pockets, and there should be some maybe on the ends of the, of the side aisles. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to just keep that one, take it with you. We'd love for you to have it. But we want everyone to have a Bible with them open this morning, because that's what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be hard for you to follow along if you don't have, don't have one open in front of you. So grab a Bible and we're turning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's easy to find. Just start from the beginning, flip a couple pages. The, the chapter numbers are the big numbers. First numbers are the small numbers. We want you guys to follow along. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're continuing a series this morning on the book of Genesis. It's 50 chapters long. We're not trying to exhaust it, but we're trying to move through the high points of the book and ask the question, what does this tell me about who God is? Who is the God who made the world? Who is the God who rules it? Who is the God that, that I, I should get to know? What is he like? What has he done? And so that's what we're doing in Genesis. And so we're going to get through, we're to Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And you can follow along in your Bible. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now Father, you are the only hope of the world. And even now, a, a hundred years after the end of the war, to end of all wars, we are no closer to peace. We are no closer to rest. We are no closer to the garden than we were. Lord, you are our only hope. Thank you for your love Thank you for your pursuit. Thank you that you seek sinners. Thank you that you, you call out to us, where are you? Thank you that you in love sent your son Jesus into the world to die so we could live. Thank you for the gift of this time together. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to listen to you. This word is you speaking to us, and we want to hear from you. So, Father, we ask that you would come by your spirit and that you would speak in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, like the families who are up here a little earlier, I have small kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and a baby due in January, and so I regularly have to ask myself the question, what has happened to my house? I, I come home at the end of the day and I think, when I, when I left this morning, we had a tile floor. And now, now all I can see are children's clothing. How many, how many sets of clothes do children wear during the day? And, and they just all end up on the floor. When I left this morning, our playroom was covered in floor mats, right? And now it's just a sea of Legos. I said, to hey Kim, this, this marker on the wall, is this new marker? Or is this the marker that's always been here? It's, it's just, I, I regularly have to ask myself, what has happened to my home? And if you are paying any tension, any tension at all, you probably ask a very similar question about the world. What has happened here? Something has gone very wrong. What is it? People aren't supposed to starve in a world with this much food. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. Marriages are not supposed to end in divorce. People are not supposed to take guns into schools or bars. This is not the way it's supposed to be what is wrong with the world there's a story told about gk chesterton who was a, an english author at the beginning of the 20th century and the story goes that there was a, that the times of london issued an open call for letters answering the question what's wrong with the world today and chesterton's answer his reply to that invitation was three lines long dear sirs I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's what's wrong with the world. Genesis chapter 3 is the Bible's answer to that question and it tells us that Chesterton, if that story is true, hit it exactly. What's wrong with the world? We're wrong. The problem is us. And the problem in us is something the Bible calls sin. Now sin is not a word Genesis chapter 3 uses but there's, there's maybe no better place in the whole Bible for understanding what it is and what it leads to. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 3 and learn the roots of sin, our response to sin, and God's response to sin. First, the roots of sin. Now everybody knows what roots are, right? They're the part of the tree that's below the ground. You don't see them, but they're what holds the whole tree up and what the tree grows out of. And sin has roots, There are elements underneath it that that cause it to grow, that cause it to become what it is. And Genesis 3 shows us what they are. There are two deceptions and a temptation. And they all come courtesy of this character we encounter in verse 1 of chapter 3. Moses tells us the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, later scripture makes clear to us that this isn't just a talking snake. That this is Satan. Satan. This is uh, uh, an angel who had been created by God. He was wise and good, and then he decided he wanted to be God. He wanted to contend with God. He rebelled and he was cast out of God's presence. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation calls him that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's a deceiver. And he comes to Eve, not with an outright suggestion that she break God's law, but with a question. This is what he says in verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the answer, of course, is no. God didn't say that. He said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except one. The whole emphasis of the Bible's teaching about God in the last two chapters has been on his generosity and his goodness. He made this whole world good for us as a gift. He's a good God. Everything was for the people except for one tree, just one fruit. But Satan's question is intended to drive that emphasis right out of her mind. The first deception is that God is not good. Satan, he reacts with kind of mock astonishment. Are you telling me that in a world so full of good things, God doesn't want you to have them? I mean, can you believe him? Isn't isn't that just like God, keeping good things from you? Ridiculous. Now Eve catches where he's wrong, but there's a problem with her answer. Look what she says in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she catches. No, God didn't say we couldn't have any of the fruit. But you can see that the deception's beginning to work on her. She's beginning to think of God as more restrictive than he is because God had never said anything about not touching the fruit. But she's starting to think, God's keeping something back from me. The first deception is that God is not good, that his commandments hold us back from something that would be good for us. And we've bought into it. All of us have. We assume that we can make ourselves happier by breaking some of God's commands. We think, okay, I see why I shouldn't steal and I shouldn't murder. But if I lie just a little, then I'll protect this person's feelings or I'll keep my job or I'll get this thing that would really help my family. I I think I could be a little happier if I broke some of God's laws. We ask, who does it really hurt if we sleep together before we're married? If I I have this money that I've I've made on my own from my job, why should I give it to the poor? Why shouldn't I spend it on myself? We, We think we can make ourselves a little bit happier by disobeying some of God's laws. And the root beneath that is a doubt of God's goodness. If we really believe that God was good, that he loves us, that his rules are for our joy, we'd never sin. We sin because we think he's holding out on us. That's the first root. And the second is another deception, and this one's an outright lie. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The second deception is that God won't judge sin. The serpent wants Eve to believe that that God just threatened that as a way of intimidating them, as a way of keeping them from breaking his rule. He's he's holding out on them, and he's he's just making this empty threat. You won't die, he says. There's nothing to be afraid of. Now, be careful that you don't buy into that lie, the lie that, that God won't judge sin, that you can reject God's ways and have no consequences. Now, now this idea, this idea of judgment is disputed and scorned today. We're, we're made to feel as though that's the real problem with the world. The real problem with the world is that you guys believe in, in eternity that changes the way you live here, right? Remember, remember John Lennon? How did he say it? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. What's he saying? He's saying if we could just get past the idea of eternal reward and eternal judgment, if we could just get past that, we could really have peace. We could just think about the here and now, and then we could live as one. But how do people live when they only live for today? They live for themselves. Right? They, there's no consequences. If you can get away with it, you can get away with it. God's judgment, the idea of God as judge, it's not, that's not evil, it's not perverse, it's part of his goodness. He doesn't let injustice go unaddressed. God's judgment means you might be able to deceive people, you may beat the statute of limitations, you may, from a human perspective, get away with abusing a child, or swindling your neighbor, or cutting ethical corners, but you can't fool God. You will stand before him one day. He will hold you accountable for every word spoken, every line crossed. God's judgment means there are real consequences for how we live, and that helps us not to sin. And that's why the serpent has to destroy that belief before he can lure Eve in with the third root of sin, which is a temptation. Look at verse 5. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he tempting her to do? He's tempting her to be her own God. He says, eat this and you'll be like God. You'll know everything God knows. You can can decide for yourself how to live. You can decide good and evil for you. You don't need to listen to him. You can live how you want. Satan wants her to join his rebellion. And look at the effect of his words on her. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, if she had believed in God's goodness, she would have said, yeah, that is good. It is good for food. It is a delight to the eyes. Everything God made is good, but he's told me not to eat it, and I trust him. If she, if she had believed in God's judgment, she would have said, no, no matter how good it is to eat... God has said that in the day I eat it, I'll die. This isn't worth it, right? If she had been content for God to be God, she would have said, I'm not going to get wisdom by breaking God's rules. Wisdom comes from him. I'm going to get wisdom by trusting what he said. But Satan had planted the roots of sin in her heart, so she was defenseless, and so she ate. And, And we are shocked to find that her husband had been with her the whole time. This whole time, she's being tempted by him, Adam's there saying nothing. He's not helping. He's not reminding. He's not saying, This is not going to go the way you think it should. Let's, Let's walk to this side of the garden. He just lets it happen. And he eats as well. These roots of sin, this is what's wrong with the world. We've stopped believing that God is really good, that he really loves us, that his rules teach us the best and happiest way to live. We've rejected the idea there's any eternal implications or consequences how we live. And that has freed us to live as our own gods, to decide right and wrong for ourselves, to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And what does living that way lead to? Secondly, our response to sin is hiding. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The serpent had said that their, their eyes would be open and they were. But not like they thought. They thought they'd know good and evil the way God knows it. But the way God knows evil is just the way he knows everything, by omniscience. But now they knew evil by experience. They thought that eating the fruit would give them wisdom, but what it really gave them was shame. Now, in chapter 2, which we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 2, Moses said of Adam and Eve, and they were the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. They were at total ease with one another. They had nothing to hide. No more. Now they are ashamed. They know they're not what they should be, so they hide from one another. They make clothes to, to cover themselves up. Even even in their marriage, they don't feel safe anymore. And they don't just hide from one another. they hide from God. Verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. Every day of their lives before this, when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, they ran to him. They loved his presence. That was the best part of living in Eden was life with God. And now, that that sound that had been enjoyed in them before, now they just flee it. And they hide among the trees. They weren't acceptable to him and they knew it. So they had to get away. They hid from one another. They hid from God. And they hid from themselves. Now what do I mean? So God... God comes walking, he doesn't see them, he calls for them. It's not that he doesn't know where they are, but he wants them to hear his voice. He calls them out, and he says to Adam, Did you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat. And what does Adam say? He says, The woman, this would never have happened except for your brilliant idea of giving me a wife. That's why I ate. And then God turns to Eve, and she says, The serpent deceived me. It was, I didn't know he was lying not my fault. They're hiding from themselves. They're trying to convince themselves and God that they're victims. This is somebody else's fault. We didn't do this. We expend so much energy hiding the truth about ourselves. We're ashamed. We're ashamed at how slow we are to turn off the show we know we shouldn't be watching. We're ashamed of the words we use to hurt people that we love. We're ashamed of all the times we knew that what was happening was wrong and we didn't speak up and we didn't stop it because we were afraid of how people would think about us. We're ashamed of our envy, ashamed of our bitterness, ashamed of our desires. We know we're not who we're supposed to be, so we hide behind a social media account that's nothing but happy pictures and Bible verses. Or we hide behind a persona at work that's always positive, always happy to help. We pretend that we have it all together. We hide from everyone and we're truly alone and we hide from ourselves, as soon as we do something we know we shouldn't have, we begin telling ourselves why it was justified, why it wasn't really so bad, how anyone in the situation would have done the same thing. We start telling ourselves, well, yeah, okay, maybe that wasn't perfect, but, but think about how bad everybody else is and, and what they've done. I'm not, I'm not like them. We, we try to justify ourselves to ourselves, and most seriously, we hide from God. Now, some of us hide from God By just avoiding church, we avoid Christians, we avoid the Bible. We say we're too busy at work, too busy with kids, but the truth is we just don't want to face Him because we know we don't measure up. Others of us hide from God by always being in church, always being with Christians, always reading the Bible, trying to build up this righteousness that makes up for the things that we've done wrong. We think we can cover our shame by being really good, But we can't hide from God any more than Adam and Eve could. He made the world. He sees everything. He knows everything. We can't hide from him or his responses to sin. How does Genesis 3 say that God responds to sin? Thirdly, God's response to sin is justice and mercy. First, God responds to sin with justice. So the serpent and the woman and the man have all broken God's commands, and so he passes sentence on each of them in turn, and we're gonna we'll come back to what he says to the serpent. But what I want you to see in what he says to the man and the woman is, is that he brings this comprehensive frustration to their lives. It touches every area of life. They've they've rebelled against him. They've overthrown him as God, and so he brings this disorder into the world as this continual reminder of how they've lived. He frustrates their calling. So when when God created humanity in chapter one, he said to them, "Be fruitful." and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, that's their call, and so he brings frustration to the multiplying, the being fruitful and multiplying, he says in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, now I don't need to tell any of the moms here how true that is, right, my wife is pregnant, she had to sit this week for her three week, or her three hour glucose test, you guys know what that is, that's when you get up early, and on an empty stomach, you drink a bunch of syrup, and then you sit for three hours and get your blood taken four times. Right? That is pain and childbearing. And that's just the beginning of it, right? There's labor, which I can tell, from, I can tell you from experience, is awful to watch. It's horrible. there... Sorry there are worse pains still, like infertility, and miscarriage, and stillbirth, none of which would be in the world if it weren't for sin. And God brings frustration into this work of cultivating as well. It says in verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. There was work before the fall, but there was no pain in it. There was no frustration. If it weren't for sin, work would be a pleasure. There'd be no miscommunications that lead to missed deadlines. There'd be no children disrupting every single lesson. No wrong diagnoses that make the patient sicker. No computer viruses that bring the whole server down. No thorns and thistles. Work would be a joy. And it's not just our callings that are affected, it's our relationships. In verse 16 he says to, to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now what that means is that, that, that isn't saying that attraction in marriage is part of the curse. What it's saying is that desire, it's not a desire... To, to be near to him it's a desire to overthrow him it's a desire to master him your desire will be you could your bible might say against your husband contrary to your husband it's it's what it's that desire in the woman's on the woman's part instead of helping encouraging strengthening her husband to demean him to subvert him to take charge of the relationship and how does the husband respond he shall rule over you not not wisely, not kindly, with force, with anger. It's the exploitation of women. It's men abusing their power. These things are rooted in the fall. But the pain in our work and the pain in our relationships are nothing compared to what comes last. What comes last is the worst part of God's justice is it sends us away from Him. Verse 24, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God cuts us off from the tree of life. The tree of life is, is how we live forever. It's the fruit that, that makes humanity live forever in God's presence. To be cut off from the tree of life is a death sentence. And it's not just that. It's, it's, being, it's being cut off from God, being expelled from his presence, from his love, from his goodness. Now, because of sin, our lives are full of pain and frustration and they end in death. And if that was all Genesis 3 told us, that'd be pretty bad news. But that's not God's only response. God also responds with mercy. That the moment they took that fruit, God had told them in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. The moment they took that fruit, they could have justly just dropped dead. But what does God do? He comes looking for them, he comes calling their name. God seeks sinners you know that some of you have experienced that God seeks sinners even in our sin he loves us and looks for us and even his judgment is full of mercy because he tells her that there's going to be pain in childbearing right what does that imply they're going to be children they're going to live and they're going to have kids and they're going to have grandkids he tells he tells Adam that you're going to eat of your bread by the sweat of your brow but what does that imply I'm going to provide for you. You're going to eat. You're going to have everything you need. God sends them out. I mean, even the exile is a mercy, right? Why does God send them out? He says, now they've they've become like one of us, knowing good and evil. We can't let them stay like this. If they eat from the tree of, of life, they're going to live like this forever. Even being sent out was a mercy. He didn't want us to live forever, twisted by sin. God is just. He doesn't take sin lightly or let it go unaddressed, but he's not cold, vindictive, heartless. He's merciful, compassionate, full of love and tenderness. But there's a tension there, isn't there? Between on the one hand, God's justice, and on the other, his mercy. Because on the one hand, God can't let sin go unpunished. On the other hand, he loves sinners, And has compassion on them. So how can he do both? How can he be just and punish sin, and yet at the same time love and have compassion on sinners? This passage tells us, but I have to take two kind of unrelated parts of it and and draw a line between them. So first, look back at verse 15, where God addresses the, the serpent. He says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head." And you shall bruise his heel. What's God saying? He's saying there's always going to be hostility. enmity, is enemies. There's always going to be hostility between, on the one hand, Satan, and those who who buy into his way of living, and on the other hand, the people of God. But he says someone is coming, a son of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will bring a final victory, but in crushing the head of the serpent, he'll be wounded Now let's look at the other point. Look at verse 24, which we saw before. God drove Adam, God drove the man out of the garden, and at the east of him he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So humanity was separated from eternal life and the presence of God by cherubim, that's a, a kind of angel, and by a flaming sword, the sword of God's judgment. Now follow me here. We talked last week about the tabernacle, which was the mobile temple, the tent, that God's people carried with them in the wilderness where God would meet with his people, where God's presence was. And inside that tent, inside the tabernacle, there were two rooms. There was the the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. And separating those two rooms, barring access from the most holy place, was a veil. And on the veil... Something was stitched into it. Something was, a picture was put into the veil. Do you know what the picture was? It was cherubim. It was these angels guarding the way into the presence of God. It was this continual reminder that because of our sin, because we've turned away from God, we can't come into His presence. We can't be where He is. Okay, now what connects those two points? One, someone is coming who will crush the head of the serpent and He'll be wounded in the process. Two, There's a way into the presence of God, but it's barred by a veil. Thousands of years later, a baby was born in the line of Adam and Eve, and when he was grown, just as Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, Satan came to him, not in a garden, but in a wilderness. And just as he had with Adam, he tempted Jesus to believe that he could get something good for himself by disobeying God. And where Adam and Eve had failed, Jesus didn't. He perfectly trusted God's word, perfectly adhered to God's ways. He lived the life they should have lived. He was the perfect son of God, and yet he chose to die as a criminal on the cross. And at the moment he died, do you know what happened in the temple? The veil was torn from top to bottom because the way had been opened again through his death. Jesus, in his dying crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated sin and death for all time, but he was wounded in the process. He did it through his death. He opened the way back into the garden, back past the cherubim, into God's presence, but he did it by taking the stroke of the sword of justice on himself. As the hymn says it, "'Down to the depths of woe, Christ came to set me free. He bared his breast, received the blow,' which justice aimed at me. There justice met my sin on the accursed tree. To prove his love, my heart to win, Christ gave himself for me. How can God satisfy both his justice and his mercy? By becoming a man and taking on himself, his own justice, the just penalty of sin so that sinners can go free. And live forever. When we trust in Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven, our shame is taken away, and we are welcomed home into the presence of God. Don't hide from this God, this God who seeks sinners. Don't avoid Him by trying to convince yourself that you can rule your life best, that you can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. You have sinned, you are stained come to him and be washed clean through trusting in Jesus who took on himself God's justice so that we could have God's mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel to see how even at the beginning of the Bible, this was already and always the plan that you would come and that you would defeat our enemy who is too strong for us, that you would defeat Satan, and you would defeat sin, you would defeat death. What we could not face on our own, what we were too weak to grapple with, you came, and you fought, and you triumphed. You rescued us from our sin, you rescued us from death, you rescued us from eternity without God. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take this truth so deeply in our lives that we are shaped by the memory of God's goodness, that he gave his son for us, that we would be shaped by that, and that in knowing his mercy, in knowing his goodness, and experiencing his love, we would be changed and we would live as you made us to live, in holiness and in joy. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.